Hello and welcome to the ninth Media Savvy Off Message podcast, the last of 2018. Here's to loads more next year. And to round off the year, I sat down with a man coming to the end of his organisation's 10th birthday. Peter Feeney is Ireland's press ombudsman, and during our chat, we explored the vagaries of dealing with both print and online publications in the press complaints procedure, which he oversees. His previous lengthy career in current affairs television and managing freedom of information requests in RTE, his love of local newspapers, his predictions for the future of both the press and public service broadcasting, and more. Oh, and I also learned the Scandinavian origins of the word ombudsman. So, an enjoyable and educational chat. What more do you want? Peter Feeney, thank you for doing uh, the last off message of 2018. Um, as we're here in the offices of the press ombudsman and the press council and it's uh, it, it's the last the dying embers of your 10th anniversary as an as an institution yes we started in 2008 so we've now done 10 years and we've dealt with over three and a half thousand complaints in that 10 years is the office of the press ombudsman primarily so about complaints about the traditional and online press Yes, the office was set up primarily as a means by which the ordinary man and woman who had an issue with something in a newspaper could go to an independent body with their complaint and get an independent uh, decision. It was also thought at the time in 2008 that having a press ombudsman's office might lead to a reduction in the number of defamation actions. The evidence after 10 years is probably that it hasn't achieved that, that people who are intent on suing for defamation will be suing anyway and generally won't use the office of the press ombudsman as an alternative means. So this, they bypass you? Go yeah, they bypass the us, yeah. We have a, 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 one of our rules is that if you have initiated uh, legal proceedings against a newspaper, we won't consider your complaint. Mm. Of course, you could go to the office first, this office first, get your decision out, and then uh, sue the newspaper afterwards if you want to do that. Whether, whatever way the result goes. Exactly. So okay. you could use as sort of ammunition saying, well, we, the press ombudsman upheld my complaint, yeah. therefore... Yeah, yeah. Or if you weren't guilty. happy with the press ombudsman yeah. complaint, you could yeah. still yeah. take uh, yeah. legal action. But certainly what we, we say is that if you have legal action pending, uh, we, we won't consider your complaint. Another... Uh, comparable area is that uh, if the complaint is about something which is before the courts and we get this a lot with crime reporting and court cases mm. if there's an appeal or something like that we won't deal with it then so if there's if the subject matter of the complaint is before the courts we park it for up to two years so what kind of complaints do you get a lot of the complaints are relatively modest ones uh, regional newspapers court reports inaccuracies uh, something which somebody feels wasn't said in court or a dispute between neighbours where they feel the reporter only gave one side or the other. So it's, 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 it's not an issue of defamation. It's simply that people feel there's something inaccurate in a newspaper mm. report and they want it uh, addressed. We have a, we're committed to a kind of conciliation first. So every complaint we get in, we see if we can 
ha- resolve it without having to have a formal decision by the press ombudsman. And we have a case officer here, and her main task is to see if she can conciliate a complaint. A lot of the time, a correction in the paper the next week, a letter sometimes, uh, an article sometimes, is the easiest way to deal with it. And editors are, are very conscious that uh, they can avoid a formal decision simply mm-hmm. by listening to what the complainant has to say, and if he or she has a point, addressing it. Has that got easier or trickier as online news becomes more prevalent? Both. It's got easier in the sense that it's much easier to adjust something online than in print. Mm. If um, the Irish Independent puts up something on its uh, on its uh, on its digital platform, it says Pat O'Mahony's a nice guy. Yeah, no and a complaint is made. That. Yeah, that. they can they can change it. They yeah. can change it instantly within two minutes. They can change it. Meanwhile, it's, if it's been printed in the print edition, it's much harder to address because the only way you can do that is by putting in a correction a week later or 10 days later. But a lot of the complaints we get now are about digital-only publication. Mm. Typically, for example, if you take the Journal, which is the largest digital-only publication in Ireland, they're a member of the Press Council. And uh, if they receive a complaint, it's quite easy for them to change it online. They also wouldn't claim to be uh, the paper or the the media of record, so there they'd be more uh, more interested in addressing it instantly by just deleting or amending it. And in fact, if you look at all the online only publications now, and that includes all the newspapers now, you often see updated at ten twenty four, mm. and what that means is they've made a change. That change may be because the story has moved on. Uh, or it may be simply that something was inaccurate. Some of the inaccuracies are very minor, like, say, put, putting out the loan in Westmead instead of Roscommon. You know, just really small little things. That loan is in both Westmead. It's in both, yeah. So, exactly, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> so um, some people who are in the Roscommon side get upset when it's put in Westmead and yeah, vice yeah. versa. Yeah. Editors listen to that and they kind of say, is it worth addressing or not? Okay. Now, some um, online uh, publications will acknowledge the error at the bottom, they'll this say in an earlier yeah. draft, yeah. we've since updated it. Is, is that standard now no, here? No, it's not. No. Um, most of the time, the edit is done subliminally. So you wouldn't notice it. You if, kind of deflect uh, yeah. attention away yeah, from exactly, it right, yeah. rather now, than Which actually presents attention. us the problem. That is, uh, if someone makes a complaint, they must send us the copy of the article they're complaining about. So logically, what they'll do is they'll send you a link. When you open that link, you may be seeing something which has already been edited and changed. So, unless so they, they should get a screen grab. They should get a screen grab of what they're unhappy mm. with uh, at, at that immediately. Um, because some of the time we're not sure, is this the actual article the person is complaining of? And we... The, the the requirement is on the complainant to come up with the copy, not with the publisher. So the publisher. But will the publisher put their hand up and go? Ah, yes. Sometimes they that. will. Sometimes they will. And sometimes <laughs> they'll say, I'm, "I'm not. We're not sure what the complainant is talking about." Yeah. Some of the publications are very rigorous about saying this was updated at ten twenty four. Um, others are just just would simply yeah. make the change. I think you need to be flexible about it because if it's a minor issue, it's better to get the change done as quickly as possible. One of the earlier problems was that people publishers were very slow to make edits Uh, and because it's easy to do online they were reluctant to do it and I think then they realized that being reluctant to do it actually compounds the problem because the longer the mistake stays up the more the problem is if you can adjust it quickly well and good Um, that obviously doesn't deal with the print industry but the huge change in the last decade has been the successful nature of Google um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted to look up something in the newspaper, you went down to your library, you got out the paper and you looked it up. 
might be on microfilm, might be very painful. I remember, exercise. yeah, I've done, did a lot of that. Screen, yeah, yeah, scrum, yeah, yeah, it's terribly days. slow, yeah. But nowadays, simply you Google it, and in 1.06 seconds, up come 600 entries from mm. Patermani. Um, so it's just the, the, the efficacy of mm. Google has totally changed the nature of it. It also has meant, too, that um, if I'm in Donegal and there's something in uh, the Clare Champion newspaper, I can't buy the Clare Champion in Donegal. But now I can go probably online and find the Clare Champion and find the article. So people can access stuff which wouldn't be accessible mm. otherwise. So it is the technological development has changed the nature of the media in Ireland throughout the whole world. Has it changed the nature of the complaints? It has in the sense, in several senses. One sense is that um, 24-7 news media, uh, whether it's online or radio broadcasting or TV, 24-hour news, etc., has meant that journalists have less time to check what they're doing, have less time to say, mm, maybe that's a bit dodgy, maybe we've got to give somebody a ring about that. And as a result, um, stuff is being published now which hasn't gone through the rigorous process, which it might have gone through in the past. When you say they have less time, a lot of that is because they're understaffed and, and newsrooms yeah. are under more and more pressure yeah. than There's they two ever reasons. were. There's two reasons. One is um, the way the economics of journalism are going is there are less and less people doing more and more work. Mm. So you're absolutely right, there's less time. I'll give you a classic example of that. Um, we had a complaint about an article in uh, a newspaper about an African woman and her children in a Dublin uh, housing estate being uh, racially abused. Uh, the article was published in the newspaper. The local residents association objected and said that... Um, that it's not true that they had a very vigorous effort at integration and the local GA club, the local Boy Scouts, etc., all made really good efforts to try and welcome new people arriving in the area from other countries. Mm. Um, we looked into it and we discovered that the reporter who did that story had done an interview by telephone with a, uh, an immigrant and had then ran the article. He or she, I don't know the gender of the person, hadn't made any effort to authenticate the story. And ultimately what it boiled down to is the journalist wasn't allowed to leave his desk and he had to fill 500 words and he mm. had an hour to do it. So he had no time to go out to the community, talk to local guards, talk to local Old teachers. Old-fashioned reporting. Yeah, because old-fashioned reporting takes time. Mm. And uh, if you've got uh, stuff to fill, you simply fill it. I mean, you, we all know this. One of the disheartening uh, tasks of a lot of young journalists is simply stay on the internet all day find something interesting slightly reword it and publish it mm. find an irish angle find a local angle um, don't acknowledge where you got it from but just get it fill mm. the space with it and a lot of journalism now is just filling space and yeah. it's 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 a it's kind of demoralizing process it's much more likely to be in the entertainment kind of personality area rather than the hard news area and therefore in a sense it may not be as important but it is disheartening if you're a young journalist coming out from dit or dcu or whatever it is full of hope that you'll change the world <laughs> and you're put on a desk with a computer and said you know fill that space day after day yeah 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 Let's go back to something you said earlier, uh, a word you used in your description of the press council and the office of the press ombudsman. You said independent. Yeah. Uh, you are, your members are members of the business you are regulating. Uh, you, are, you come from a media background yeah. yourself. So in essence, you're self-regulating. How can that be independent? Well, it's, it's a perfectly fair question to ask. And in fact, it's one we're frequently asked and we're frequently accused of not being independent. Um, 
First of all, I think, what is the alternative? How can you regulate a body? You can regulate a body by laws. If you regulate the body by law, you're statutorily regulated. That effectively means the government is regulating it. Government passes laws. In the case of the press council, newspapers 10 years ago recognized the need for some kind of regulation, self-regulation. And they didn't want to be regulated by the government. And there was kind of a vague threat from the government that if you don't get your house in order, mm. we will regulate you. Some of the cynics or skeptics might say, well, you basically said it, it was set up to get serious regulation off their back. I, I think there's a degree of truth in that. I think what motivated the newspapers to uh, established press council was the fear of mm. statutory regulation, regulation by government. But it goes beyond just regulation because it's also who would be the regulators, who would be on the board. So if you take comparable, some sort, somewhat comparable by the BAI, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, they are based in law. The Broadcasting Act determines what they can do and what they can't do. Um, how they are funded is determined by government. Uh, who sits on their board is determined by government. Who sits on their complaints uh, committee is determined by government so you can see there's a, a lot of government involvement in broadcasting if you take print industry traditionally uh, it wasn't controlled by government at all and they wanted to come up with a model which was independent so they took several measures to kind of to encourage that degree of independence one was that the funding of the press council is is determined is it's funded by the newspaper industry but there's a kind of a chinese wall where i have no involvement whatsoever in the funding is a separate committee which looks after the funding and it's based entirely, the proportion of funding is based entirely on your circulation. So the Irish Independent as the biggest circulating newspaper makes the biggest contribution. Uh, a small little magazine with small circulation makes a tiny contribution to it. Um, it's also That's the same way that the BAI get their fundings, for, for some of their funding from uh, Yeah, the, the BAI has had different types of funding yeah. over the years. Uh, but once, part of it is the bigger radio stations yeah, and television yeah, stations yeah. contribute more than yeah. the smaller ones. Uh, there was a period where it was funded directly out of the license fee as well mm. uh, and then there was a period where there was a levy put on all broadcasters mm. as well but go back to the print one so uh, in terms of our funding we tried to be as independent as possible of the funders um, but also there's 13 people on the press council and there's always th seven of the 13 are independent members they're public interest members of the press council they're not involved in not the, the press industry at, in, at all at no. all and they are selected by what we call an appointments committee which is uh, kind of three wise men and women who have nothing to do with government and nothing to do with the press industry they select the independent members and they mm. can sit it's a three-year period which can be renewed once and any crucial decision we always ensure that a majority of the board present at that time are independent the chairman or chairwoman is also always from the independent members as is the deputy chair so we make we make the best effort we can to be as independent as we can be sure but as i often when people you know uh, talk to me about working in various aspects of the media and they say oh the the, the owner never rings me I've, uh, I've complete independence whatever and I say to him listen we both know that we wouldn't get the gigs we get if we weren't a safe pair of hands and we this weren't is on side yeah. to start with this is true I mean one of the exercises that we have to engage in is we have to produce decisions which the newspaper industry are comfortable with. They have to feel that the regulator is working, that the regulator is doing his or her job and is making independent decisions. Could that influence me to go a bit soft on the newspaper industry? I would think not because I'm conscious of the fact that unless we uphold some complaints, we really are nothing but a smokescreen. Mm. So I think we come at the decisions from a, quite an independent viewpoint, recognizing that 
you have to on occasion say to newspaper i'm sorry you may disagree but we feel you got it wrong and now the only sanction we have is that newspaper editor must publish in full a decision of the press they have to they're obliged they are obliged obliged okay and they must publish it on the same with the same prominence this is the interesting thing about apologies one distinction i mentioned that later on the wood you know people have always said oh yeah they published an apology on the back page in small print and whatever and that's still to a degree or else the apology is mealy-mouthed yeah you're right about apologies. Apologies can be hidden somewhere in a newspaper and can be very ungenerous and a bit obscure, to put it mildly. But a formal decision of the press ombudsman must be published on the same page or further forward in the newspaper than the original article mm. appeared. Okay. The exception to that is if it's a front page story. If it's a front page story, it must be published in the first four pages. And if a newspaper publishes my decision further down the newspaper than the original article, they have to republish it the next week or some. Okay, so it can bite them on the ass if they try and play funny games. So, for example, uh, one of our Sunday newspapers two years ago published a decision of mine uh, seven pages further back than the original article. They had to republish it the following Sunday further forward. Okay. So that, and you know, you may think, well, that's not much of a sanction, but actually it is because editors' pride is Mm. hugely at stake here. The publication of a decision by the press ombudsman upholding a complaint is something they hate doing and they will do their absolute best to avoid doing it. But we have never had a problem with a newspaper refusing to publish our decision. If we had a newspaper which refused to publish our decision, probably ultimately they'd have to leave the press council. Yeah, I I understand that pride thing because, you know... But you're also right about a lot of the time complaints can be dealt with by just publishing a correction, clarification or Mm. apology. It's important that they get that right. And sometimes we, our our case officer engages in lengthy discussions with editors about the wording of it. If you you were offended. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, For any offence, we apologise for any offence that may have been caused. so, you know, editors try to minimise the apology, but if it's too minimal, it doesn't work. It's simply actually counterproductive. One of the uh, funniest online, and I've no idea of its veracity. I don't know if it's true, but it's very funny. A meme that I keep seeing uh, pop up again and again is an apology published in some paper, UK or US, I don't know, about to a band where they talked in the original article about uh, a member of the band being on drugs. Uh, what it should have said was he was on drums. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, that's just one letter. So kind of, uh, yeah, a little clarification. One of the things is that a lot of newspapers have a, a regular column for clarifications and corrections. There are mm. times, for example, The Guardian, for example. They always insist they put their clarification in there. They Editors claim that is the most effective place to put it. Ah, OK. Whereas so they ring fence an area. Yes, yeah. yeah, so let's say the, the mistake was on page five of the Irish Times. They will publish the clarification on their editorial page where they have their clarifications and corrections. Which may be column. further back in Maybe further back. But they argue uh, that the uh, market research shows that their readers are aware that's where that's you where go okay. to find it. I mean, it's quite often, for example, if it's a, a mistake in the business section, there's a question to ask, where do you publish the clarification? Do you publish it? just in the business section where business people read it or mm. you publish in the main part of the newspaper where a general audience will mm. read it. And it, it really depends on the nature of what is being corrected or clarified. Right. Um, but we don't uh, have any say where a clarification or correction goes. We only have a say in where a decision of the press ombudsman goes. Um, your own career path. Sure. I would have first met you, Peter, um, when you were, was it editor of Primetime or head of Current Affairs? Yeah, yeah. I, I, Both, I started yeah, yeah. in... in RT in 89. Yeah. i tell you how, how I ended you, up You there. came from a lecturing background. Yeah. I um, was lecturing in politics in 
what is now University of Ulster in Belfast. And I was from the South, and it was a horrible time, mid-70s, to be in Belfast. Where are you I, from originally? I'm from Dublin. Okay. I, I remember I was... How did you end up in, lecturing in Belfast? I got a job there. I was <laughs> teaching politics in the University of Ulster, and one of the courses I gave was in the evening times, kind of adult education kind of stuff. So it meant taking the bus, I didn't have a car at that stage, out from the centre of Belfast where I was living, out to the college, giving the lecture, and then standing on the road at night, 10 o'clock at night, waiting for the bus to come to collect me to bring back into Belfast. In 1970s Belfast. Mid-70s. And it was yeah. not a nice yeah, place yeah. to be. I then got a car, and I remember one night driving into Belfast Centre from my lecture, and I stopped by what was then the RUC, and they, said, they just stopped the car and said, I'm sorry, sir, you can't go along there. There's rioting in Rathcool. And then the guy, the policeman, either heard my accent or saw the number plate in my car and said, oh, it's all right, it's your side that's rioting tonight. Oh, wow. And I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, yeah. I'm on a side here. Yeah, I didn't yeah. think I was. I thought I was neutral about it. It wasn't a great time to be in Belfast. And I, I found the student body was very, understandably, very cautious about expressing views mm. because there were nationalists and unionist kids sitting down together they probably had been to school separately. Now they're together in college. They were wary of each other. They were wary of expressing viewpoint. It wasn't a great atmosphere for teaching. Mm. And uh, I was looking for a job, and my wife saw a job advertised as a trainee producer director in RT. And I says, "Ask why not throw my hat." Did in you know ring. what that entailed? I hadn't a clue. In fact, when I was being interviewed for the job, I was asked by the assistant controller program at the time, "What is a producer director?" And I said, "I actually don't know." And I thought afterwards, Jesus Christ, Peter, you should have, <laughs> you you should have, have lied. You should have Googled that. <laughs> yes, I should have. This is pre-Google. Um, but anyway, I, I got the job. The other thing I remember that interview was um, I was asked, did I speak Irish? And I said I'd learned in school, but I could, certainly couldn't claim in any sense I spoke Irish. And um, they, one of the people handed over to me the, that half page of the Irish time that's in Irish tourist call or whatever it was and said, read that for me and I said I can't and he had a look of despair on his face and I thought uh oh, oh there's another job gone yeah. and in fact m my intake of producer director was the first intake where compulsory Irish wasn't required all previous intake producers they mm. were made learn Irish if they didn't wow. have okay. Irish yeah, yeah. and there's a famous story told I'm not sure if it's true or not Pat O'Connor who went on to be a very substantial uh, movie producer he was on a training course learning Irish and at the end of the course uh, they handed him a phone yeah and he picked it up and said, I, you know, I prefer to drop dead than wear this fonia and just handed it back to them. You see, you're, you're, I know what the fonia is. A lot of people listening okay. won't know what the fonia is. those under the age of 50. Gokolas obuska tri kui kui was a TV ad for the fonia. It's like the pioneer pin. It was a little badge you wore to indicate that you're an Irish speaker or if it was the pioneer pin, it was a little badge to indicate that you're a teetotaler. Yeah. They disappeared virtually. F the fonia, it was a, it was a ring. A little, gold ring. A gold yeah, ring yeah, that yeah, you put yeah, in your lapel yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I do remember yeah, them. Yeah. They've long disappeared. Yeah. Um, how, did, how did you make the leap from, uh, how, and how long did it take from being, uh, you know, a, a, a producer director uh, into the more admin end of sure, it? Sure, yeah. Um, I went into RTE at the end of 75. Uh, I was assigned as producer in current affairs. I was made editor of a current affairs programme in 1978. Obviously coming from a lecturing in politics back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. It, it made was, sense it that you weren't put in children's programmes. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Then in 1980, I had my... I was moved into documentaries and I worked... It was, the, it was Centenary of Eamon de Valera's birth. So I made a five-hour documentary series on Eamon de Valera, which was great fun. Then after that, uh, I did a couple more years in documentaries and I spent a year in the Late Late Show as producer-director, which oh. was good fun. 
And so you would produce and studio direct? Yeah, I directed Late Late Show. I have a very poor musical ear, so I was a very uh, bad director of Late Late Show. In fact, Adrian Cronin was the other producer in Late Late Show. He was uh, head of the department, and he used to slip into the seat for the musical items, and I would <laughs> slip into the seat for the, uh, the talk ones. But uh, that was a great year. I enjoyed that enormously. And then um, after documentary, I went back into Current Affairs and became editor of the main Current Affairs program in 1990 and head of Current Affairs from 1990 to 1997. Then I left program making after 1997 and went into sort of management and RT. The suit came on at the time. Why did you leave program making? Um, 1997, I've been editor of Current Affairs for seven years. Um, there is a, a natural cycle when people get tired and people run out of ideas and energy. Tell that to Gabo. He did the late, late I know, for, for 30 years, years or whatever, yeah. 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 And... Um, the, uh, there was a change of controller programs and the controller wanted to shake things up and mm-hmm. uh, I was moved into Millennium Programming which again some of your people won't remember the year 2000 was a big Fudge, issue yeah. and uh, RT like every other television broadcaster decided to uh, to put a lot of energy into Millennium Programming and I was put in charge of that and Noel Kern who became Director General was working to me uh, on the New Year's Eve program, which was kind of a 12 hour program. The old broadcast. Y2K. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly Y2K. And I, we made documentaries, we made entertainment programs, etc. The one that sticks out in my memory, and it's one I hope might be revisited. One day, an archivist in RT came to me and said, Did I know, Peter, that in 1980, RT made a television documentary predicting what the world would be like in the year 2000? So I went and got that program out of the library, and here were these experts saying, By the year 2000, X, Y, and Z will mm. have happened. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting for the millennium year to revisit that? So we made a program called 2020, which was a nice, clever title. And we brought together about 30 experts and brought them all up to um, Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Monaghan. And uh, we put them down with no B unit and talked to them for a weekend about what will the world be like in 2020. We showed them first the program from 1980 and said, look how wrong the experts got it. Now you do the same thing and talk about it. I remember, for example, a person in that saying, there will be no... Uh, petrol by the year 2020 there will be no more coal by the year 2020 people will have electronic chips inside their bodies by the year 2020 so there's some kind of predictions which haven't come but others have come to be very mm, accurate mm. so I, I haven't done this yet but I intend to go to RT and say lads here's an opportunity 2020 is coming up next year why don't you revisit the 2020 program and the the one 20 years the, nine, the 2000 program and the 1980 program and say what's going to be like in another 20 okay, years I might, I'm, I'll obviously edit this bit out and, and I'll go to, to RT yeah, with the idea, with the yes. idea. good luck to you <laughs> I, I won't be pitching for me to do I'll be pitching for somebody else to do it Andy O'Mahony presented the one in 1980 and you know, the one in hey, 2000 hey, Andy O'Mahony was you know, let's keep the O'Mahony tradition going <laughs> good and I, used fill, I used to fill in for Andy on the Sunday show and I remember Andy after, the, Andy after the 2000 programme said to me well Peter I won't be around in 2020 for the next one so you'll have to get a new presenter <laughs> for it so maybe keep the Amani name yeah, going I, 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 I second that emotion <laughs> um, um, as, as part of your gig in RTE as a suit as you said mm-hmm. um, you were very involved in FOIs freedom of, of, yes. of information yeah. and with RTE that works two ways you are FOI'd by people wanting to know what the organisation is at. Yeah. But as an investigate, as a body that uh, has investigative programmes mm. on, on, on its channels, um, it sends out FOIs. Yes. 
were you across that was that must have tore you apart yes because it, you it's, know. it's riding two horses at yeah, the same time yeah. uh, um, my main task was dealing with the hundreds of requests we got primarily from journalists but also from members of the public to use foi to get access to information about rte the rte had a very good exemption the freedom information act was 1997 rte was brought in in the year 2000 and when rte was brought in we got an exemption for essentially for our journalism so the actual act of making programs, mm. the, edit, the editorial processes were exempt from freedom of information. What was an example would be things like finances, sure. management, etc. So are, are other investigative uh, outlets like newspapers, are they exempt? No, no, because they're not public bodies. Newspapers are entirely exempt from FOI. It's only government bodies can be brought under FOI. So newspapers don't have the equivalent at all. Okay, so I can't take, FOI... At, can't, uh, the Irish Independent, you can't do that. No. no, you can't FOI them. You won't get it at anything. It's got to be a public body. Though there's a few private bodies that are in receipt of public monies that you okay. can FOI the public monies part of it. Okay. So going back to FOI, my job was essentially to deal with all the requests we got from newspapers and from uh, public about FOI. But also I was involved in training FOI Training journalists in FOI how to use mm. freedom of information. And that was an enjoyable and useful part of it. What I discovered fairly quickly was that you needed to take a long view. If you had a story which needed information within a few days or a few weeks, FOI was not a very fruitful means mm. of going because there was time frames which meant that the body being asked for information could delay giving you the information they could force you to go to appeal they could give you a bit of the information withhold not the that rte would ever do any of no but, uh, you know every public body is kind of in my view was overprotective yeah. because most including of the time, rte yeah including yeah. rte most of the time you have nothing to hide and yeah. it's better to get it out there and one of the exercises which freedom of information officers do is they encourage their public body to simply put up on their website lots of the information put up on the website mm. the minutes of your meetings put up on the websites yeah. the director general's diary etc um, and take the bbc they put up on their website all the expenses claimed by their senior members um, so just get it out there so it doesn't become a subject of foi it's quite hard to convince a body that uh, they won't suffer by releasing information but um so you needed to, some of the people like, say, John Burns in the Sunday Times, he was very good at seeing FOI long term. You know, I put in something, but I may not get any return for six months, but it'll be worth it in six months mm. time. And you've got to train your journalists on how to put in the right questions, because it's a bit like parliamentary questions. If you don't ask the right question, you won't get the right answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, people can be slippery about that. So you've really got to say to people, folks, what exactly are you looking for? What do you think? What record do you think that public body has that they're not releasing? And what value would it be to you? So there are some very good FOI journalists out there who know how to use it. This is both in broadcasting and in print, mm. who can use FOI very well. And I think if you look at it after was it nearly 20 years since Freedom of Information was introduced, it has made public bodies more accountable and more transparent. So overall, it has been a very good uh, piece of legislation the downside is is that lots of public bodies now are more reluctant to commit to paper electronically or mm. physically uh, some uh, records because they fear it will be released under foi so for example if you take minutes of public bodies they're much more sanitized now than they used to be in the past they won't say who said what who argued this who argued uh, that they okay. will just they will just record the decision it went to a vote and the vote was carried by okay. 10 votes to three yeah, yeah. in the past you would have read the arguments by both sides about it so i think the public record has been damaged somewhat this can be exaggerated by the freedom of information but the amount of the accountability and transparency of public bodies has increased enormously and fy has been responsible for some very major investigative uh, journalism in ireland mm. in the last 20 years which has 
done the public service considerable good, I think. People wary of FOIs will have a lot more face-to-face discussions informally out in Absolutely. the corridors yeah. and yeah. we Int- use things yeah. like WhatsApp yeah. rather than Absolutely. You know, email. Yeah. Yeah. Electronic uh, records are freedom of are accessible under FOI. But you are right. Um, an interesting example of that was some years ago, um, a journalist, newspaper journalist, requested something to do with health and he got a handwritten note from one side of a two person phone call where somebody phoned a significant person and said uh, let's chat about this Mm. and the guy took a record of what that conversation was and then that was subsequently released and there was indignation that a record had been created that phone call when the assumption was this is kind of you know an informal off the record underworld underground it's like comey and his taking notes with with his meetings with trump and i think nowadays you've got to assume that a lot of stuff could be being recorded mm. and uh, could we have that problem here in this office here and that is that we try to conciliate complaints and that involves a degree of informality you know well if you went down this road it might be true if you don't go down that road yeah. you don't that is a, a confidential process and it can read sometimes if a record was created as if you know you're on one side or the other side you're encouraging it but it's trying to achieve a conciliated uh, resolution to complaints mm. well this is recorded this is recorded this is for this. I'm conscious of this being recorded <laughs> Do you miss it's? You said you left program making in ninety seven. So yeah. it's twenty one years. Yeah. Do you miss it? I certainly miss the excitement of it. There's no question about that. It is a, an exciting business. Being when I retired from RTE, I remember saying the day I retired that I had gone into work to RTE for thirty seven years, and I'd never been bored any one day in RTE. That's a hell of a good claim to be able to make, and that is to do with the excitement of making programs. And or every even day is different. Yeah. Every day is slightly different. Yeah. And you know, I remember meeting a guy who had a very well paid job in a as a as a kind of stock controller in a jewellery business and he said that his problem was that every single day of his life he had exactly the same job yeah. and even though it was well paid and he enjoyed yeah, yeah. the job he really felt that you know life was passing him by because he's doing the same thing every day yeah. so yeah, it's a payoff it's certainly broadcasting and journalism is a good place to work you're doing different things you're mm. meeting people you wouldn't meet otherwise you're you're getting insights you wouldn't do otherwise it's, it's a great career and it's reflected in the fact that even though financially it's a very insecure career now the colleges are still full of people applying to study it still has an air of glamour about it, it. it does it does yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but you said there you know 37 years as staff yeah so with the security that went with it yeah uh, you've never freelanced no after i left rti i worked as a freelance consultant for about two years and then I applied by public competition for the job of press ombudsman and I got it so I'm now back an employee of the press council of Ireland so in uh, I've only been a freelancer for two years so yeah. I haven't <laughs> suffered the swing the arrows and ah. that you've suffered over the years <laughs> I do remember games. in my first year as a freelancer I looked at how much uh, money I'd taken in and realized that my expenses setting up a website you know getting an office uh telephone etc at half of my turnover so mm. you suddenly realize that you know when you're a salaried person and you earn fifty thousand a year you get fifty thousand a year less tax yeah, yeah. if you're a freelancer and you earn fifty thousand a year twenty five thousand have maybe gone out on expenses quite yeah, yeah. quickly oh yeah uh you learn very quickly uh what's you keep all the receipts yes, you yeah, know yeah. and and what and don't can, fool and, yourself that this is actually income and just because it's in the bank turnover, don't yes. spend it yeah, yeah, yeah. no absolutely and mm-hmm. um, what about your own media consumption um uh, what's your balance between uh, radio sure. television I, print I, online etc yeah. etc 
I, I still am a great enthusiast about news and current affairs on television and radio. I still enjoy listening to radio programs and television programs. I'm more Catholic than I was in the sense I switch channels now. I'm quite happy to switch from RTE to News news Talk. Used to have a loyalty when you were in oh, I, RTE. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, and that's the kind of silo effect, and that is that uh, you see yourself as the most important and you tend to disregard the opposition or... or uh, be scornful of the opposition. That's a weakness of any absolutely because good dominant body. Yeah, good people. I'll, I'll often wander by in, for instance, in Norty Radio and there are yeah. other channels yeah. on because they're listening to yeah. what the the, yeah. the yeah. competitions yeah. are. So I mean, I'm a big consumer of radio and television as kind of an ex participant. I enjoy it, kind of looking at it cynically, saying, you know, that, that's a good broadcast voice or that that report was simply rubbish. Mm. I sometimes jump up and down and shout a bit at the set metaphorically um, because I, you know, I, I listen to say Vox Pops and I say, you know, what was the advantage in that Vox Pop? Yeah, yeah. What was gained by going out in the street and talking to those five people who know nothing about the subject they're talking about? Glad to know so, I'm not the only one who shouts <laughs> at the television. I, I get uh, critical of yeah. it at times, but I'm also a big and enjoy reader of newspapers. I read every morning the Times, the Independent, and the Examiner. Mm. Um, I have the advantage I get them free in the office, so <laughs> that makes it easier. And then online, I read the uh, Times.ie, yeah. and I, I keep a fair eye on local newspapers as well. We, I go down. But you for, have to as part of your I job. I do. You. I do. But in, in fact, I mean, I, I do it for pleasure. To, I, I go down to West Cork. We have a little house down in West Cork about once a month. And the first thing I always do is go into the local shop and buy the Southern Star mm. because I like reading local newspapers. I like finding out. And New York newspapers are fantastic at that, telling me what local people are interested in, what's important for them, what's happening in their area. You can argue that local radio does it, but local radio is a bigger catchment area. It's all of West Cork. Whereas if I go and get the Southern Star, I know exactly what's happening in Clonakilty. I know exactly what's happening in Skibbereen. I know exactly yeah, yeah. what's happening in Scott. So I really enjoy local newspapers. And if they were to die out, which isn't impossible. It will be a huge loss. I will think. they die out? Will 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 print press in its entirety die out? There is no business model that is sustainable for print press anymore, because more and more the consumption of print press is online. Mm. If you get your Dart or your Lewis or your Bus in the morning, now look at everybody. Everybody's on their iPhone. Everybody is reading stuff. Some of them are reading Facebook. Some of them are reading their email. Some of them are reading just you know. WhatsApp, etc. A lot of them are consuming print journalism online. The problem essentially is how do newspapers get money for that? And it is a real issue. And the other issue of that too is that a lot of people are drawn to an article and say the Irish Independent, the Irish Times, by some comment on Facebook or WhatsApp. So you leave Facebook and you go to the Irish Times article, Irish Independent article. They don't get any money for that either. Mm. So it's it's really difficult to come up with a model which works. And the but obvious subscription model, models yeah. are increasing yeah. and and the newspaper industry itself is saying they're hopeful that yeah. it's a younger people are more, more willing, willing to pay, to pay yeah. Yeah, for quality i think when the internet grew everybody worked on the assumption everything was free on it right. and you never had to pay for it and that's kind of ingrained in quite a lot of users of the internet but clearly the future for online publishing of journalism has to be with paywalls and there's some quite successful models for that at the moment um, if you take for example the daily telegraph they have premium stuff on their website where you have to pay to get into and then they've unpremium stuff if you take local newspapers they often have uh, uh, a website which gives what's major stories that are happening during the week between publication and if you want to get into their other stuff you pay a small subscription the subscription can be smaller than buying the newspaper because it's cheaper to put stuff up mm. online than to print and give the local news agent a cut of it give the local distributor a cut of it so you can actually charge less for the online only version of it so 
I think the future has to be some form of subscri- subscription. Subscription that models could work be. if there's a uniqueness to what you're offering. Yes. If it's just general news, yeah. that's... Yeah. People will go and get it free somewhere wherever. else. Wherever. Yeah. 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 And I mean, we all experience this. You, 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 somebody recommends something to you, you go to it and discover you have to either pay for it or sign up for it. Yeah. So you leave it. You forget about yeah, it. You yeah. move back. Um, but people will, will get used to paying. One of the key things would be is the electronic means whereby you pay a tiny amount of money rather than subscribe a weekly subscription or yeah. month subscription newspaper that each time I go to that okay. five cents is taken mm. out of my uh, of my credit card that's quite an easy model to develop it's just where you don't actually have to sign up to something but if I go to New York Times because somebody says here's a great article New York Times I go there and they say oh you have to be a subscriber I won't go to it because I don't want to pay the New York Times sure. but if it was five cents off my current car- card I'd be quite happy to pay yeah, that yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I mean we're all now using debit and credit cards to pay for our newspaper pay for a cup of coffee we're tapping all the time we're moving closer and closer to a cashless society and uh, consuming journalism online can be a cashless exercise if you take 30 cents off me for reading the Irish Times this week or mm. f- you know 10 cents off me for reading the main story in the Irish Independent or give me 30 cents for exactly yeah. and, so, <laughs> and some of that should will then obviously go back to the publishers and will help to make them a viable no, I was so, talking about yeah, giving me 30 if I sit yeah, down sure. and, and recommend and, it to you yeah. no. I know they uh, Google and Facebook will argue that uh, they're driving people to the websites of the newspapers that doesn't actually matter unless they get some revenue they're creaming off otherwise they give most away of the advertising, advertising so I mean they, they, you know, newspapers yeah. regard uh, um, them as parasites essentially that they are populating their service with material which someone else has paid for mm. and they see them as parasites so I think we have to work towards a model where online publishing has a financial future and that means either paywalls or charge per usage and they will they are developing and I think there's some degree of optimism that uh, you can address the f- inevitable decline in circulation of print one thing you didn't mention in all the media you talked about consuming, mm. and you're doing one, mm. you're doing a podcast. Do you mm. listen to podcasts? I'm, I'm a, a low-level listener to podcasts. Partially, it's like I, I don't like audible books much either. I, ah, okay. I feel an intolerance if I can't move on, and, and that's a, a, a weakness for me. I don't have time during the day to do it, and then the evening time, you know, kind of family and mm. so forth, you tend not to listen to them. So I'm not a great user of podcasts. I, 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 I'm old-fashioned enough to love radio. I really like radio. I really think radio is the best means for quite a lot of discussion, chat, plus serious news and current affairs. It's a great medium still. And it's a medium which is quite resilient. Radio has remained more resilient than television or print uh, and is less threatened, arguably, by the whole uh, deferred broadcast world we live in now or the uh, you know the, the, the Netflix kind mm. of model, which obviously clearly impacts hugely on television. Radio is quite a resilient means still. Uh, now, it has an, age, an older age profile, there's no point denying that, but it is a, it's a great medium. Do you use social media personally? We have a, we, 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 we keep going a Twitter account, very modest. Here? Here. Uh, yeah, no, but yeah. I'm talking no, about yourself. Yeah, my, my, Are you example, on social yeah, media? I have uh, one adult son in Sydney, one adult son in Vancouver, we communicate every day by mixture of text messages, uh, Facebook, um, Twitter, and not not Twitter and um, WhatsApp, WhatsApp, Skype, yeah. that kind yeah. of thing. I'm a good good example of that. Uh, two years ago, sorry, last year, I was involved in organising a family reunion. We decided we weren't going to just meet at the funerals every five years. We would have a decent, enjoyable mm. family reunion, and we decided we'd hold it in West Cork. My mother's from West Cork, and we'd have it down there. 
and I, my mother's a large family we had about 30 first cousins on my mother's side it wasn't getting great traction it wasn't getting great take up until we got a whatsapp going and the whatsapp was just for cousins etc we had 98 people attended a family weekend uh, reunion mm. largely because of the successfulness of a whatsapp group mm. it because each person said, oh, I know another cousin who could come in and join yeah, that yeah. group. So it was contained. Yeah. It was never public in any sense. Yeah. But it ended up with enough people in it that 98 people came. So I met third cousins and fourth cousins who I would never have met were it not for WhatsApp. It was a fantastic means of communicating. I'm a bit surprised you don't use Twitter as most of my Twitter timeline. Mm. is like having my own personal uh, newswire. Yes. And so I'm following news organizations yes. from all over the world yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm surprised you don't use we, we have Facebook ha- uh, sorry the press council has has a Twitter account and we we, we follow 250 people yeah but you don't use it you don't you don't you're it's not on your screen you're not using no I don't use it I mean I, I, we I, I put up about a tweet a day sure but I have to be very careful because I can't tweet about something that I might be likely to be making a decision of. Yeah. So I'm not going to say Leah Radker is good or bad or no. Michael Martin is good or bad mm-hmm. because I might have to deal with that. As but a, a lot complaint. of people don't tweet, they lurk. Yes, they use yes, it as, yeah. as, as a, a means, one way, yeah, as yeah, a way, yeah, mean yeah, of yeah. finding out information, yeah. whether it's gossip yeah. or whether it's yeah. news. It's, it, my PA here, she has uh, Twitter open on her desk and she will come to me a lot during the day and say, look, this is happening, that's happening. Uh, some of it will show up potential problems in journalism to mm. be anticipated one of the services we provide is what we call advisory notices and that is we can issue editors with an advisory notice it is simply that it is saying you know there's something coming up we've been approached by a family where there's a sensitive funeral coming up they really don't want journalists at the funeral they really don't want photographs of yeah, the funeral yeah. or there's a, a coroner's court coming up and there's an issue about children etc so we send out advice notices to editors not saying they can or can't do it. That's up to them to decide if we're going to cover it. But just saying, you know, there are concerns around privacy or the concerns around children, etc. Uh, that helps to deal with sort of the jungle of social media where people can say anything they like and get away with it. Do you ever spot something uh, online or in print in one of your members' publications and not get a complaint about it, but go to them, guys. Yes, but a word so of informally, yeah. I will on occasion contact somebody and say, listen, there's a comment under your article uh, on the oh, website. But what about something in the article? Do you ever say... No, no, that wouldn't be you, my job. You never no, no. say you're, you're, no. you're, tre- you're, you're I, walking on thin ice. Yeah, here. no, I won't do that. I, I, if, if it is piece of journalism, I will wait for the complaint to come in. Otherwise, I'm taking the side of the newspaper. Okay. But what I will do on occasion is if I see, for example, a user-generated comment yeah. under an article which looks defamatory, I will ring an editor or send a text up. saying you know do you really want to leave that up there okay so i will do that occasionally but i we don't get involved in sort of policing journalism ourselves we rely on complaints to come in are you confident about the survival of the press i think there is there has been and will remain always a need for good journalism public value a public society requires someone to hold to account those in positions of power and authority. Except and that those who own and run the yeah. media well, are themselves in positions yeah. of authority. And they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. You know, the, if, if, if a businessman owns a newspaper, that newspaper should try and ensure that that 
businessman's business is interrogated. Easy to say that. It's impossible. Much harder to do. In the real world, it doesn't But if there's enough newspapers out there, other newspapers can do it kind of thing. But, I mean, you are right that um, society requires journalism and it doesn't actually matter hugely what the platform is. Now, it does have impact because I'm absolutely convinced that journalism consumed online, uh, the, the, the user pattern is a much more fleeting and briefer time spent on that the the a decent piece of investigative journalism requires the time that a television program has or the time a radio program has or the time that a newspaper can give to it you know it needs the 15000 words it needs context it needs background it needs and it time needs the and money and resources yes. yeah. yeah whereas and if it, if you're going to consume all your journalism online, you're much more likely to go for a maximum 500-word piece of journalism. Mm. So it's a much more fleeting experience. Um, I often look at my newspaper in the morning and I see something and say, oh, that's interesting, I don't have time for it now, I might come back to it in the evening. That never happens online. It's very seldom you'll say, oh, here's a long read online, I'll bookmark it. And I'll Funny you say that because there is a, a Twitter account called Long Reads, mm-hmm. which is exactly about that. And um, I, I get entirely why you wouldn't go. But for instance, I spotted one yesterday. And I liked it. And by liking it, it saves it too. Yes. So I will go back, go back to, to that it. later. Yeah. Uh, it might be today, tomorrow, it might, you know, but it's there. Well, maybe that pattern will emerge. Um, I, I watch people, I, I take the Lewis into work quite often. I watch people on the Lewis looking at their news, on their iPhones, looking at the Irish Independent, Irish Times, mm-hmm. whatever it seems to be, Daily Mail, etc. And I would say they typically spend 10 or 15 seconds before they flick. It's a very short period. So therefore, it's much more likely to be sports news or entertainment news. If it comes to serious news, you'd hope that there is some usage where people mm. say, this is worth me spending two minutes, five minutes, reading it in depth. Maybe the Lewis is the worst time to do that because, you know, it's crowded and sure. you're, you're looking That's out That's why your I stop. think on the way to and from work, people are listening to podcasts more and more. I see a lot of people with headphones now yeah. uh, and you would wonder what they're doing. I mean, sometimes you kind of can hear through the headphones you say, it's music, they're listening to it. It's music, yeah, they're, yeah. they're bopping yeah, yeah. away. But sometimes you, you hear yeah, it yeah. is conversation. Yeah, yeah. One of my sons is a great believer in podcasts and he says he just uses them in the car all, all the time. He says that's the perfect medium for car journeys. He'll have to sign up to Off Message now. Uh, I'm going to leave one question. We talked about the future of the press. You come from a public service broadcasting background. Are you confident that public service broadcasting will survive? It's a bit like newspapers, that the financial model is also broken. Mm. And, um, is the no, licence the way? There's no easy answer yeah. to this. Um, as the market diverts, diversifies more, as more and more people come into the market, as the means of consumption changes, the justification for a licence fee that applies to everybody becomes harder and harder to justify. Also, I'm, it's an unfair tax. It, yeah, because if you're not a consumer, are, are, not, yeah, and you know, rich people pay the same, same as poor as people, people yeah. etc. So, I mean, I think that model is in considerable doubt. The trouble is, what is the alternative? Well, the obvious alternative is some sort of subscription model. Uh, in other words, people have to sign up to taking RTE and pay for it. The trouble with that is that quite possibly Ortiz finances would absolutely collapse. And there's and no long-term the, security no, in that. And the lots of things could happen to that too, and that is things mm-hmm. which don't generate people signing up. For example, funding orchestras, uh, funding children's programs, funding education programs, that part of it might be lost in the mm. process. So I would see people will still be willing to pay for RTE, but it, it probably would lead to huge reduction in finance. And if you look at other countries where public service broadcasting... Didn't Switzerland have a referendum? Diminished. Yes, they did. Yeah, and they absolutely. decided that they, they wanted to fund it by a licence. They would yeah. keep a licence fee, and they have a very high licence fee too. Um, but if you look at other countries in Europe where the public service broadcaster has become a smaller and smaller part of 
the public consumption. Mm. It becomes virtually impossible to justify it. My first job ever was teaching in what is now Galway Mayo Institute of Technology. And every Monday morning in the staff room, I was a very young teacher there, the staff always talked about the Lake Late Show on Saturday night. It was a water cooler moment. Yep. So that's yeah. what they, they'd either gone out or they stayed in, as they had families more likely to be staying in. So everybody had seen mm-hmm. Late Late Show. And the reason was, in Galway at that time, there was one television channel. That's right. So you either watched Late Late Show or you didn't have your TV on. Therefore, you could talk about it on Monday and the assumption that half the people in the room had actually yeah, seen yeah. it. That world is long gone now. And if you see the Late Late Show today, you can be pretty certain that the numbers watching will be a fraction of what we're watching it for. That's one example is, is, is probably the yeah. great yeah. Uh, exception in that most people still yeah, do if they're in yeah, yeah yeah but it, it, against that if you look at morning ireland listenership still getting 400 plus thousand people mm. very considerable listenership if you look at sean o'rourke look at the news one there's still as large listenership for public service broadcasting radio and television and it can influence the agenda for the rest of the day quite importantly so i, I would i think there would be a huge public loss if public service broadcasting died Funding it out of commercial revenue will lead you to kind of, a, at best, a news talk, uh, Today FM, TV3 or Virgin Media type model. It won't provide the model of public service broadcasting, which we take for granted mm. at the moment. But it is quite problematic. And I don't like the notion of government funding as an alternative. ABC in Australia, which was equivalent to BBC, equivalent to RTE, they used to be funded by licensee. Licensee was abolished and the government took over funding ABC, direct uh, subvention. Government changed, more conservative government got in mm-hmm. power, didn't like ABC, cut by 25% their budget. Devastating impact on ABC. So I, I don't like the notion of direct government funding. I think the danger of the of control and doing what the government wants... Although they still control the, the level of licensee... They do, and effectively and frozen it for 10 yeah, years. Yeah, so they've know. certainly done that. But if it was a direct subvention of... I don't know what RT gets from licensee, I think about 200 million a year. If government said, well, we will give that 200 million a year and we abolish the licensee, the danger would be next recession, they'd cut that back. And you can understand why they cut it It becomes as fickle as a subscription model. It does, yeah, effectively, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah. Optimistic, but but reservations. I, I I hope that public service broadcasting survives. I think society benefits from public service broadcasting. I'm just not sure that we know yet what that model will be. That's Pe- sitting on the fence, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Peter Feeney, press ombudsman. Uh, oh, the one. Do you know that? Sorry, I was about to wrap. I got to ask you one sure. final question, mm-hmm. and it uh, it's not PC gone mad. Mm-hmm. Why is it ombudsman? Uh, as a kid a good as question. a kid it always annoyed me before the yeah. phrase pc ever yeah. existed yeah. why is it a chairman why yeah. you know yeah. why is it a foreman it's, it's an absolutely valid question ombudsman is a swedish word and it dates from the 18th century and it has no gender in swedish so in ombudsman in sweden is gender neutral okay. so ombudsman can be a man or woman All right. some academics have started talking about the ombuds the ombud okay. taking out the word man just okay. say ombud yeah yeah um we used to call our chair chairman and we now change it to chair yeah uh, so what would you change ombudsman to ombud it's people understand what an ombudsman is they know what the children's ombudsman is they yeah. know what the the ombudsman is so it's 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 a useful term it, people understand it immediately um, but I absolutely un- accept that some people may see it can only be a male. Now, there's only been two press ombudsmen in Ireland, so and both far. males so far. Early days. Yeah, but it's early days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. On that note, Peter Feeney, uh, press ombudsman, thank you very much. Thank you.
So, thanks again to Peter Feeney for our off-message podcast number nine chat. If you fancy investigating previous episodes, they're all available for streaming or downloading at SoundCloud, Google and Apple Podcasts, and all the other usual suspects. You can subscribe to future Media Savvy off-message podcasts there, or if you sign up via the subscription form on any off-message post over at patamani.ie, you'll also get ahead of the pack notice of equally riveting off-message blog posts. And of course you can follow and like off-message on Twitter and Facebook at offmessage1. As usual, all shares and shoutouts greatly appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off-Message, and thank you for listening. Have a good Christmas, and here's to a Mediatastic 2019.